0: One of the encouraging truths that we've been covering in the book of Revelation is that Jesus walks among his churches. He is, he is near to us, and, and, he, and he knows us. He knows our needs. Uh, but Jesus' presence is also a very sobering thing, isn't it? Because when Jesus walks among the churches, not only is he encouraging us, but he's exposing our sin. Uh, and, and he is weighing our our faithfulness, and so with Ephesus, we learned that alongside right doctrine and moral resilience, a faithful church must excel in love. with Smyrna, we learned that being faithful unto death is only possible when we have made ourselves rich in Jesus beforehand and then, with Pergamum, we learned that the greatest threat to the, the greatest threats to the church are not outside, but they're actually inside. When when people inside the church compromise with the world, this next message to Thyatira is is like that message to Pergamum. Only here, it seems the church has tolerated false teaching for much longer. There's a so-called Jezebel, and she has seduced numerous church members into idolatry. Idolatry. Sometimes we mock Eastern religions for their many idols. But it wouldn't be wrong to say the West provides some stiff competition... We're less prone to bow to statues, but is it not the case that many bow to their stuff? For many, life revolves around affluence and possessions. Others idolize sex, from NFL cheerleaders, to makeup labeled seduction, to overt pornography... Our culture sells and enslaves image-bearers to satisfy the God of sex. We've also exalted self. In his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman observes how morality and meaning have shifted from objective truth in God to the subjective in self. Others make an idol of the state. Many, even now, hoping the government will save us and the government will bring justice. So whether it's from things that entice us, from things that we maybe fear too much, from things that we trust in, or even from things that we need, idols are not hard to manufacture. And they also have far-reaching consequences. According to 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that they enslave us to demons. Idolatry also dehumanizes people. We, We treat them as means to get what we want or as obstacles in the way of what we want. Idolatry also degenerates our person. Psalm 115, verse 8. Those who make idols become like them. Meaning, dead and useless. And worst of all, Idolatry robs God of the worship that He alone deserves, and therefore idolatry leads to judgment. Now, knowing these far-reaching consequences of idolatry, Jesus comes to care for this church in Thyatira. He comes to correct where they have compromised with false teaching that accommodates idolatry. Listen to the way Jesus responds in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, like the first three messages, uh, Jesus begins this one with a vision of His glory. Faithfulness will always hinge on whether the church is beholding Jesus' glory. In this case, He begins with the title, Son of God. Now, sometimes in Scripture... Uh, this title speaks to Jesus' divine nature. But if we race there too quickly, we will miss a significant point. You see, John has seasoned this passage with allusions to Psalm chapter 2, especially when we get to verses 26 and 27. Psalm 2, which you read earlier in the service, is the backdrop to this title. Son of God. So in Psalm 2, you see there that sonship refers to God installing His anointed King to represent His rule over the nations. So it is also repeating language from God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, A promise to raise up an heir with a forever kingdom. And that son in David's line would manifest God's rule on earth. But he would so manifest God's rule on earth that to see this son ruling would be to see God ruling. Well, Jesus is that son. Read Acts chapter 13, verse 33, and you'll find God installing Jesus... The God man, you will he will find God installing this man in his role, in this role of son of God by resurrection. Now, in a culture where Roman emperors liked to label themselves son of the divine, son of God, you could see how Jesus' message is rather countercultural. Son of God you say? That title belongs to only one man, Jesus Christ. Only Jesus truly manifests God's rule, not Caesar. Only Jesus earned that title. God rewarded only Jesus' obedience with an inheritance of nations and worldwide dominion. So we're obeying Him, Caesar, not you. All others are just pretenders. Jesus is also a holy warrior here, we see. Verse 18 says that he has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. That's language from Daniel chapter 10, verse 5, where we see uh, another picture of a heavenly warrior. So think gleaming, polished armor here. We'll see this imagery again in Revelation 19, verse 12, where Jesus makes war against the rebel nations who have worshipped the beast and practiced idolatry. In other words, if Jesus has been installed as God's supreme king, if Jesus is, is the holy warrior who will not tolerate false worship, who will not tolerate idolatry, we better listen up to what He has to say. We better heed what He he says, especially in a culture like our own that's teeming with idols and teachers who seduce people into false worship. So what does He say? We're going to follow the same pattern that we observed in in the other letters. We first encounter what Jesus commends. What Jesus commends. He says, I know your works, and then He lists the works He has in mind. He commends their love, First, so the church in Ephesus had abandoned love. Apparently, this church is rich in love. They, their love for the Lord spills over into their love for one another. He also commends their faith, and the way it's used elsewhere in Revelation this is faith in the person of Christ. They trust his word, they're remaining loyal to his name. Next, he commends their service, and that would include like ministries done to, to one another in the church or also ministries to help the spread of the gospel to other nations. And the last work he mentions is their patient endurance. So tribulation is threatening them to abandon Jesus, but they are sticking with Jesus. They have stood firm, many of them. And not only that, but Jesus adds that they have matured in these works. Notice he says that your latter works exceed the first. So Jesus has noted their growth... These church members have not remained stagnant. They started strong and then got stronger in these ways that he lists. Paul often thanks, uh, Paul often thanks God in, um, when, when churches grew abundantly in their faith, when Paul's writing his letters. Paul also would pray for churches to abound in their love more and more. The overriding assumption in the New Testament is that Christians are going to be growing. That Christians are going to be maturing. That churches are going to be growing. That they're going to be maturing into Christ. And so looking back over your own life, hopefully your latter works, the works that you're doing right now, are exceeding the works you had at first. Jesus finds this growth commendable. But Jesus also finds something threatening this church's health. The good things they have will disappear, and even worse will happen to them if they continue tolerating Jezebel. So we're going to look now at what Jesus commends, I mean, condemns and threatens. What Jesus condemns and threatens. Verse 20 But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Now, twice you hear the words sexual immorality from the ESV. And usually we understand that merely in a, in a physical sense. But the verb that's translated to practice sexual immorality here, it appears numerous times in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, to describe spiritual adultery. Okay, you've heard it translated this way. Israel played the whore. Israel played the harlot. All right? It speaks more to Israel abandoning her covenant husband to run around with other lovers. Those other lovers being false gods. Which might include sexual activity, but the point is much broader. And I think that's what's going on here too. The picture is speaking more to cheating on the Lord with false gods of all sorts. Okay, and that also matches, matches what Jezebel did in the Old Testament. That's the figure he has in mind. You won't, if you read the narrative, Jezebel's not actually committing sexual acts with anybody. She's seducing the nation into idolatry. So this is the figure he has in mind from the Old Testament, Jezebel. There's there's not a woman actually named Jezebel in this church. All right, Jesus is using Jezebel the same way he uses Balaam in chapter 2, verse 14. Jezebel is a type, a symbol. She keeps reappearing throughout history. She just wears different clothes. So who was this this Jezebel? Well, Jezebel appears in 1 Kings... She first appears in 1 Kings, chapter 16... Verses 29 to 32, she's the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians. She is a Baal worshiper. Ahab was king in Israel, and he takes Jezebel as his wife. Ahab's already an evil king, but but by taking Jezebel as his wife... She then incites Ahab and Israel to worship Baal. She also cuts off God's word from the people. God had appointed prophets to come and condemn this idolatry, this worship of Baal, but she kills these prophets. She cuts them off from Israel, and in their place, she gathers a bunch of false prophets and she lets the false prophets eat at her table. And so you see this pattern develop where she's cutting off God's word from the people and coddling liars that agree with her. And then later in 1 Kings 21, she also leads men to falsely accuse an innocent man named Naboth, and she has him killed unjustly, all to give Ahab the vineyard he wanted. Later in 2 Kings 9, Jehu condemns Jezebel, saying, What peace can there be so long as the whoring and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? And the Lord then kills Jezebel. She's eaten by dogs, and he turns her body into dung spread over the face of the earth. That's what God thinks of Jezebel. Jezebel not a great woman. She silences God's Word. She favors liars. She incites idolatry. She treats the innocent unjustly. Apparently, the Lord finds people in this church tolerating that woman Jezebel. So, very likely, there's a specific teacher in view who's character lines up with Jezebel, but Jezebel is actually standing here for something much much greater. When you turn over to chapter 17 in Revelation, this Jezebel has a lot in common with the great prostitute, okay? That great prostitute in Revelation 17 deceives the nations. She gets people drunk off earth's abominations, and she kills God's messengers. Also, the word describing Jezebel's deception here is the same word applied to Satan and to the beast and to Babylon elsewhere in the book Of Revelation. And so tolerating Jezebel is tolerating an entire satanic system that is strategically plotting to undermine the worship of God and the worship of the Lamb. Let's put it this way You are the bride of Christ. But there are other lovers out there who will try to lure you away from your covenant husband. There are other lovers like the woman in Proverbs, Dame Folly, not Lady Wisdom. We want to listen to her. But Dame Folly, she lures God's people into a trap And Jezebel is doing the same thing here to the church. She's dressing herself up pretty and preparing her bed while your husband is away. And she's standing on the street corner saying, come lay with me. She's pushing out God's word from your life and whispering lies to get you okay with her idols. Now, there could be numerous reasons these Christians might have given into something like this. One of the most convincing is to escape persecution and make yourself more successful. You see, numerous, there were numerous trade guilds, trade guilds that ran their economy. Uh, you'll get some of this later in Revelation 13 and Revelation 18. Uh, but there were numerous trade guilds that ran their economy. But membership into these guilds was bound up with idolatry, right? If you wanted to make it, you got chummy with the people at the temples, right? You sprinkled the incense and you did what you had to do to fit in with the other people. And Jezebel's teaching would say things like, it's okay, maybe you'll have more influence this way. It's okay. Don't don't you want to become all things to all men? It's okay. Jesus knows you have to be a citizen of Rome, too. And slowly, over time, the church gets comfortable with the culture's idols. Slowly, the church starts looking more like the world and less like a kingdom of priests. But the Lord knows Jezebel's evil, right? He he's jealous for God's exclusive worship. I have to say, it's pretty ama- the, the Lord's patience is also pretty amazing in this passage, isn't it? He says, "I gave her time to repent." Whew. I gave her time to repent. We're not told how, but Jesus had confronted her before, apparently. And we're seeing here that the Lord is slow to anger, right? At the same time, He refuses to tolerate idolatry, and she refuses to repent of her idolatry. And so Jesus says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation... Unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Now, the children are those who decide to follow Jezebel instead of Jesus. Okay, Jezebel is their queen mother. For those who refuse to repent, Jesus threatens them with the same plagues that he will pour on the earth in judgment. Only here he would do it soon. The New English translation does a better job. It says, Behold, I am throwing her onto a sick bed. In other words, the time for repentance is over. This is what she's about to get. Jesus wasn't waiting any longer. Judgment would fall swiftly, and at least one of His goals would be this. He says, all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Now this reminded me of Ananias and Sapphira. Remember them in Acts 5? They lie to the Holy Spirit to keep their money, and the text then uh, then says that that God kills them. They both drop dead on on separate occasions, and and it says, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these, these things. That's the effect this passage ought to have on us. If you choose to go to bed with Jezebel, God will give you a bed of judgment. You won't be able to hide either. He knows you. He searches mind and heart. His gaze pierces the deepest motives. He knows when when we accommodate the world's lies. He, He knows when we're just giving Him lip service while coddling our idols on the side. But His warning is a gift to us. He means to turn us from idols to serve the living and the true God. Now, not everyone bought Jezebel's lies. Some had remained faithful, and the Lord has amazing promises for them. Let's look at that next. What Jesus promises here. Verse 24. But to the rest of you... See, it's not the entire church. right? We, we need to be able to make these distinctions too when we're talking about other churches. Not everybody in the church... But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. Jesus makes two promises for the faithful here. One is that we get to reign with Jesus. He says, the one who conquers... And who keeps my works until the end? To him, I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even if I, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, that Psalm two, that Psalm two, the nations may rage against the Lord, but they will not get the final word. Jesus will. God has appointed Him to rule the nations. Revelation 19 repeats the same words and applies them to Jesus. Jesus will strike down the nations with the sword of His mouth, which is the Word of God, and Jesus will rule them with a rod of iron. In some sense, though, here in chapter 2, we find that those who are faithful get to participate with Jesus in in that rule. The second promise is this, I will give him the morning star. I will give him the morning star. What's that? Well, if you turn over, it's what I love about Revelation. Revelation often tells you its own symbols, right? If you turn over to Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches." I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Okay, so Jesus identifies Himself as the morning star. So to give us the morning star does it give us Himself? But there's more to it than that, right? It's tied somehow to this kingship, this in in the line of David and, and, and so forth. So, I think what it's speaking to here is that he's going to give us himself in the fullness of his reign over evil. So there was a prophecy reaching back to Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. We have this ironic turn of events where Balaam ends up blessing Israel instead of cursing them. And within Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24 17, you find these words. He says, I see him, but not now. So, from the position, the time when Balaam, I see him, but not now. So, some distant figure, I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Listen to what he's going to do it shall crush the head of moab and break down all the sons of sheth that's israel's that's God, that's the enemies of god's people it shall crush the forehead of the enemies of god's people where else is there a promise for one who will crush the head of evil genesis 3:15 right seed of the woman he would crush the serpent's head. And so using that same imagery, Balaam's prophecy foresees a star, a ruler, a king, he will rise out of Israel and crush the enemies of God's people. And that star is Jesus. Right? And so we get this narrative when you put all this together, you get this narrative from the seed of the woman in Genesis to the prophecy of Balaam in Numbers 24 to the blessings of David Right? In 2 Samuel 7, all the way to Jesus being this star. Okay? And His coming will rise like a bright morning star, and the glory of His reign will outshine all others. And you will receive that gift if you hold fast what you have till He comes. So how then do we hold fast in a culture like our own, teeming with idols and false teaching? I mean, Jezebel is still seducing churches. Jezebel has corrupted entire denominations. I grew up in the PCUSA. Instead of upholding the testimony of Jesus about sexuality and marriage, the PCUSA compromised with the world's idols. In the late 90s, I can remember the the session... The, the elders in our church going to session and debating with others about whether or not it was appropriate to ordain homosexuals, those practicing homosexuality. They they eventually approved that in 2010. They then approved same-sex marriages in 2014, and in 2018, those embracing transgenderism could become members. No concern about church discipline or anything like that. The PCUSA is not alone in this deception. Jezebel has also led numerous Christians into other forms of sexual idolatry. Covenant Eyes reports that 64%, when you hear this number... And you read things in Ephesians like these things ought not be named among you. These numbers ought to break your heart and, and, and uh, make your stomach turn in knots. 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women say they watch porn at least once a month. Don't shake your head at liberal denominations, if you're looking at porn. Don't shake your head at liberal denominations if you're giving into sexual acts outside of marriage or doing whatever else happens with Jezebel in the dark. If that's you, she has deceived you as well, and you need to repent. Churches have made too many excuses for those stuck in patterns of sexual sin. There are also Christians pushing critical theory of all sorts, whether they do this knowingly or from ignorance. Uh, Neil Shinvey observes that critical theory views reality through the lens of power with each person's fundamental identity not rooted in the image of God, but reduced to a group, whether by race... Class, gender, sexuality, etc. And these ideas are infiltrating churches and leading people to worship themselves and their group. And if you'd like to see a few concrete examples of how that's happening, Neil Shinvee, just type into your search bar, Neil Shinvee has an article online titled, Critical Theory Within Evangelicalism. And he's got some examples that you'll just, you can just pull up. He's got a list of them. And he's got some other helpful reviews there. So this is yet another way Jezebel's teaching is harming the church's obedience. Or consider another example. My brother helped plant a church in the northeast... Later, they merged with an older congregation who, for years, had flown the American flag in their worship gatherings. The previous elders wanted to remove the flag, but they never did because of the backlash. The new set of elders did remove it, explaining why from Scripture, and some of the members got really angry. Their anger revealed an allegiance to America over Jesus' kingdom. They wanted Jesus, but only insofar as He was wrapped in red, white, and blue. That's comparable to Jezebel's allegiance to Rome. You might even run into a situation at work much like the first century Christians found themselves in. Your employer might put you in a place where you must bow to the cultural norms. Right? Use these pronouns. Sign this document. Attend this parade. Wear this shirt. Or you lose your job here. Or you're not getting promoted here. You might have fellow employees that are pressuring you to fit in with their group and you you find yourself drawn to to fit in, right? You you start laughing with their crude jokes and joining in their sins. Jezebel tempts the church to bow before the God of social acceptance. They used to call it peer, peer pressure. She tempts the church to bow before social acceptance instead of bowing to Jesus' word. These are just a few examples. Jezebel's seduction is alive and well. So how can we remain faithful? How can we hold fast what we have? One, let the patience of Christ lead you to repentance. Right? Many of you... I'm talking to members of Redeemer Church, primarily when I say this. Many of you have not fallen for Jezebel's lies. You you are in this this category of those who are being faithful. You're among those who don't know the deep things of Satan, right? You find Jesus' words here an encouragement to you to keep pressing on, to keep being faithful. But there are others of you who may be thinking oof, I have been listening to Jezebel's lies. I have been giving in to her idolatry. And if that's you, I want you to stop right now and give thanks that you're still alive. Give thanks for Jesus' mercy. And now start walking out repentance. If you need help doing that, that's what the church of Jesus Christ is for. So find a faithful brother or sister or multiple and ask them to to pray for you. Ask them for help. The elders are more than happy to, to help walk with you as well and guide you to turn away from these various idols. Second, check your own motives or desires. Check your own motives or desires. With, with, with eyes like flames of fire, Jesus, it says here, searches mind and heart. Jezebel's teaching has become attractive because she's feeding these, some of these Christians what they already want to believe anyway. That's why they're attractive in the first place. I, I kind of want to believe I can have Jesus and this too. In 2 Timothy 4.3, Paul wrote that a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. It doesn't take much time to look at the spread of podcasts out there and realize this is happening It's so easy to listen to those who tell you what you want to hear anyway. I read an article this week by a Hebrew teacher claiming that the phrase male and female are not binary, they're like more so like two ends of a spectrum and there are all kinds of genders in between. If your passions want transgenderism to fit Scripture, you will ignore Scripture's context, and you will ignore the poetic structure of the text, and you will ignore natural order and revelation, all to find something that suits your passions. You will force the text to say things to accommodate Your idols. And that same would be true if you're particularly passionate about America. Or your safety. Or your possessions. Or your job. Or your political party. Or your comforts. If we're not careful, our passions will distort God's Word so that we can accommodate our idols. So that we can have Jesus and... You you fill in the blank. So be careful... Check your motives and desires. Cry out to the Lord like Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Third, devour God's Word to discern the false promises of idolatry. Devour God's Word discern the false promises of idolatry. Jezebel, what did she do? One of the first things she did was kill the prophets. If she can get the word of God cut off from God's people, they won't be able to discern the idols. Because it's through the scriptures that we come to know the true God. So stay in your Bibles. There's a plug for the How to Grow class. Right? Go here, Jamal and Daniel and Trey teaching on how to grow. Get at your elbows on both sides of this book. Some of you are reading lots of things during the week. Lots of Facebook. Lots of news media. Lots of books and, and blogs. But you rarely pick up your Bibles. If that's you, you're putting yourself in danger. Great danger. So set aside time every day to read the Scriptures. The Scriptures expose idolatry's emptiness and false promises. And the Scriptures also reveal the glory of the one true God. Which leads to a fourth point. Set your mind and heart on the glory of Christ. That's where Jesus begins His letter, isn't it? All seven letters begin with His grand vision of the glory of Christ. Christ begins with a vision of His glory and then He keeps pointing the churches back to that glory, right? Every letter begins with something back from that vision He he gave them. We have to remember from Romans 1 that the root of idolatry is exchanging God's glory for things that are lesser. So we've got to reverse that. We must adore the glory of God. Not exchange it. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are transformed, it says, by beholding the glory of the Lord. The more you see of Jesus' glory, the less compelling idols become. Also, when Paul, when Paul preached in, in the first time in Thessalonica, and he's writing back to that church to describe what happened when he preached Christ there, Right, you, you get this. So he says, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And then he adds this, you received the word with much affliction. So you have Christ was preached, Christ was received, and then he says, here's the result, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So if we're preaching the glory of Christ to one another, Christ alone frees people from serving these useless, dead idols to serving the true King. He makes us into true worshipers when we preach the glory of Christ to one another. So, keep doing it and set your mind and heart on His glory. Fifth, this is mainly to the elders of this church, including myself and other men who may aspire to eldership. Teach sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Teach sound doctrine and rebuke. That's a quote from Titus 1.9. Rebuke those who contradict it. It's not enough just to teach sound doctrine. We must also rebuke when people contradict sound doctrine. There's too many stories where someone enters a church, they give generously, they're serving the body like crazy, everybody loves them, but over time they start mixing in the world's ideas and the pastors decide not to correct it not to address it because it might offend them or it might hurt giving or it might just kind of stir things up and I don't want it's all comfortable in the church and members meetings are hard when we do that and so they just stay quiet And slowly, over time, Jezebel drowns out God's Word. Brothers, this takes a lot of work and careful attention. It requires alertness, diligent study, and hard conversations. But Christ is worthy of our efforts and Christ appointed us to help His bride endure undeterred by other lovers. When leaders don't speak up, Churches go down with Jezebel. Sixth, and this one we do together, church. Patiently teach one another and practice discipline when unrepentance persists. Okay, we have a responsibility to help each other understand the Scriptures. Right? Elders equip the church, parents are equipping their children... Older women are equipping younger women. Older men are teaching younger men. As we have opportunity, we're all kind of teaching one another in care group settings and one-on-one conversations over coffee. And we also do this as we're teaching with patience, right? Just because you get something wrong doesn't mean the church is coming after after you, you Jezebel, right? It's not the kind of spirit we're creating here. We've all got got something in our understanding of Scripture that needs correction and refinement. We all have excesses that need to be curbed and and brought more in line with, with what honors Jesus. But if there comes a point that someone is shown the truth of Scripture, and they reject it, and then they keep teaching others to the contrary, then the church has to act church has to act. We want to approach this like Jesus did. He gave her time to repent, but He never tolerates idolatry in the church. Some things in life we have to tolerate, like, like what you're going to do for Christmas and Thanksgiving and how you celebrate those, those, those things. All right, we, gotta, we, we need to tolerate, you know, what's the best way to structure gathered worship, what policies best serve the, the free market? We can, have, we can tolerate some, some differences there, but when it comes to this holy priesthood and the purity of Christ's church and the gospel, we cannot tolerate idolatry. It's not loving to do so. Idolatry desto- destroys image bearers and it robs Jesus of worship. And then lastly, if you actually, before I make that point, when I say patiently teach one another and practice discipline when unrepentance persists, it kind of goes hand in hand with the part about elders teaching sound doctrine, okay? If any one of us elders starts flirting with Jezebel, you've got to act, church. You've got to act, right? First, Les, first Timothy 5, 19 and 20 gives you instructions on how to do that. Alright, so we want to be held accountable as well. Right. Lastly, if you're in Christ, do not fear persecution. You belong to a kingdom that will conquer the nations. Taking a stand against the world's idols will lead others to mock you and persecute you and make life miserable for you. You might have to, take, you, you might have to make choices one day that puts your family in a hard place. Because faithfulness to Jesus will mean you can't be successful economically. You can't own the things that you own now. You can't buy and sell like you you used to do. And in those moments, we need to remember this text, we need to remember these promises. Do not fear. The morning star is rising. His kingdom will prevail. His enemies will be crushed. His word will make the world right again. And that is our hope. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for this word from Jesus. Help us to obey it to keep it, to practice it uh, as a church. Protect our church from false teaching. Protect us and guard us in our our hearts so that we don't want the things of the world. And lead us in the way everlasting. Amen. Mm